Hello, this is Tommy Peeler, and welcome to Carefully Examining the Text. Today, we have our second podcast on Psalm 48. Psalm 48 is a lengthy psalm with 72 verses. We covered the first part last time, but Psalm 78 is a historical psalm. Psalm 78 deals with the two main characters of Scripture, God and man. It shows us God's love, God's mercy, and God's refusal to give up on His people Israel. But it shows us Israel's rebellion and stubbornness before God. God's goodness looks brighter against the background of Israel's sin. And Israel's sin looks darker against the background of God's holiness. In Psalm 78, verse 40, the text is emphasizing God's goodness and the people's rebellion against Him. It's emphasizing these two points. The writer is stunned in verses 40 through 55 at how the people had forgotten God's mighty works of redemption. Notice in verses 40 and 41 how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert again and again. They tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Notice the words how often at the beginning of verse 40 and the words again and again at the beginning of verse 41. It is to stress the repeated rebellion to God, the continual disobedience, how often they rebelled. The word rebelled is a word used in verse 8, verse 17, and it will be used again in verse 56. The text tells us they grieved, they grieved God. The word grieved is used in Genesis 6 and verse 6 about how God is grieved at man's sin. And verse 41, again and again, they tempted God. This word is used of Israel testing God in the wilderness ten times. Numbers 14, verse 22. What the writer is astonished by is Israel's rebellion against him, Israel's disobedience to him. And in verse 42, they did not remember his power. Now, that is so striking because in verse 48, excuse me, in verse 39, verse 39, God remembered that they, Israel, were but flesh. God remembers that Israel is just flesh. He remembers Israel's weakness. But in verse 42, Israel failed to remember God's power. They did not remember His power. The day when He redeemed them from the adversary, when He performed signs in Egypt and wonders in the field of Zoan. They didn't remember God's wonders. They didn't remember His signs and marvels, words that are often used together to describe the Exodus. For example, Exodus 7, 3, and Deuteronomy 4, and verse 34. And God reminds them of it. In verses 44 through 51, 
you're going to see a survey of several of the plagues that God sent against the Egyptians in order to bring judgment upon them. But these means of judgment upon Egypt were salvation for God's people. God's people were saved and delivered by these plagues. In verse 44, they turned their rivers into blood and their streams they could not drink. The Nile River gave life to the land of Egypt, and Egypt is often called the gift of the Nile. But this water became a messenger of death instead of a messenger of life when all the waters were turned to blood. In verse 45, He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. This text emphasizes a couple of more of the plagues. You notice that they're not all stated in chronological order, but he's recalling several of the plagues to emphasize God's signs and wonders by which he showed his mercy and goodness to the people in the land of Egypt. Most of these don't need a comment. But you look in verse 46. He gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. In verse 48, he gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. You remember that Moses had warned about the plague of hail in Exodus chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. He stated that if you leave your servants or your cattle in the field, they will be killed. Those among Pharaoh's servants who feared God brought their cattle in and their servants in and protected them from the hail. Those that didn't left them in the field and lost them. That's what verse 48 is referencing in verses 49 through 51 he went, he sent upon them his burning anger fury and indignation and trouble a band of destroying angels he leveled a path for his anger and did not spare their soul from death he gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt the first issue of the virility of the tent of Ham. God sent angels to destroy Egypt in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. In Exodus 12, verse 13, God says, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It doesn't mention the agency of angels specifically in Exodus 12, but in Psalm 78, verses 49 through 51, the text does. God sent a band of destroying angels. And often in the Old Testament, angels are said to fulfill such a function. Some other passages uh, that demonstrate that kind of idea are in um, 2 Samuel 24, 16, 2 Kings 19, 35, and Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 7. The Lord showed goodness to his people by delivering them from Egyptian slavery and oppression. But you notice in verse 52, he led forth his own people like 
sheep and guided them like flock in a wilderness. Compare Psalm 77, verse 20. Verse 53, he led them safely so they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. God divided the waters of the sea. Israel crossed over on dry ground, but the waters come back on the head of the Egyptians. And God brought them into their land in verses 54 and 55 and apportioned them an inheritance by measurement. God is good to Israel. God is giving them the land. God is bringing them into the promised land. So verses 40 through 55 intersperse the ideas of God's goodness to the people, God delivering them from their mighty foes and breaking them via the plagues. It intersperses that idea with the idea that Israel rebelled time and time again. But maybe after God has brought them into their good land, Things will be different. Things will be better. But verses 56 through 58 reveal that is not the case. In verse 56, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High. The people are said to tempt God in Psalm 78, in verse 18, in verse 21, and in verse 18, verse 41, and verse 56. They tempted and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they provoked Him with their high places and aroused His jealousy with their graven images. Now the sin is not so much murmuring and complaining, Asking, can God provide a wilderness, a table in the wilderness like he did, like the sin was in the wilderness? That's not their primary sin. As the people become, occupy the land, their primary sin seems to be worshiping other gods. They provoked him to jealousy with their idols. And in many ways, idolatry becomes the focal point sin. In the Old Testament, in verse 59, when God heard... Now, this is an ironic point here. They are worshiping their gods at their high places. They're worshiping their graven images. But it's God who hears and who's filled with wrath. It's not these idols who hear. They're nothing. They're lifeless. But God heard, and God was filled with wrath. We see that expression in verse 21. We see the anger of the Lord rose against them in verse 31. And here in verse 59, when God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. In verse 60, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. Now, the destruction of the tabernacle of Shiloh is not recorded in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel records it being the religious center, and then suddenly it just kind of disappears after 1 Samuel chapter 4. The destruction of Shiloh is alluded to 
In Jeremiah 7, verses 12 through 14, and Jeremiah 26, verses 6 through 9. Shiloh was destroyed. Jeremiah uses that as a warning that this temple will also be destroyed. He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. And he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hands of adversity. You remember, when the ark is taken, the text tells us in 1 Samuel 4, the glory has departed from Israel. It seems like this is the time that's being spoken of. In verse 62, he delivered the people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. He was filled with wrath at his inheritance. He was filled with wrath toward the people. Now, it's interesting that Israel's sufferings at enemies' hands is never understood as merely an act of human initiative. But God is abandoning them. God is handing them over. In verse 63, fire devoured their young men, and his virgins had no wedding song. His priest fell by the sword, and the widows could not weep. Seems to refer to 1 Samuel 4, verses 19 through 22, and the events narrated there. Certainly, there are other points in Israel these words are fulfilled. But what we've seen is God is good to Israel in spite of their persistent rebellion against him. They continue to rebel, and God is filled with wrath and judges them. This psalm deals with the wrath of God and his judgment on sin. But this psalm also, this psalm also demonstrates God's abundant mercy to his people. Between verse 64 and verse 65, there is no statement about the people's repentance. I'm not trying to minimize the absolute necessity of repentance. 1 Samuel chapter 7 shows us after a while in Samuel's time, the people did repent and tried to bring about a revival. I'm not minimizing the importance of repentance. I am stressing that often God takes the initiative by blessing and working for his people's good, even when they haven't repented. And in Psalm 78, in verse 65, For the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. Like a warrior overcome by wine. Now, that's a bold image. But God is aroused from his sleep. Often in the Psalms, God is called upon to awake. Psalm 7, 6, Psalm 35, 23, Psalm 44, 23, Psalm 59, 5, and 6. God awoke from his sleep. And in verse 66, he drove back his adversary. He drove his adversaries backward and put on them an everlasting reproach. The Bible says in verse 67 that he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. 
God didn't choose Ephraim. He chose Jerusalem. He chose Mount Zion. That is his dwelling place. That was the place that this text tells us that he loved. And there he built his sanctuary, verse 69. God chose Jerusalem. He chose Mount Zion. And in verse 70, he chose David. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep folds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. God chose David. God chose Mount Zion. And God prepared David for his work of being king by shepherding the sheep. In shepherding the sheep, David was prepared to be a shepherd of the people. In verse 72, David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. God's grace, God's mercy is shown to Israel in the choice of David and in the choice of Mount Zion. Now, I want to tell you something that's really striking about this psalm. If you read Psalm 74, shortly before Psalm 78, and Psalm 79, which is immediately after it, it may well be that when these words were written, the temple wasn't existing. Certainly, when book three is arranged as it is, the temple was not standing. But God chose Mount Zion. And Psalm 89, the last of these psalms in book three, deals with the fact there is no king of David sitting upon the throne. In verses 38 through 52, there's no king of David sitting upon the throne. It may look like God's choice of Mount Zion and God's choice of David are hopelessly part of the past that have no part in the present or the future. But God is demonstrating that those promises mean something even after the temple's destroyed in 587 B.C. and the last king of David is taken off the throne, those promises mean something. For as the Israelites wondered what would happen to God's promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as they wondered about that subject, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first verse of the New Testament tells us that Jesus was the son of David. Jesus was the son of David. He was the one promised here. And not only is he the son of David that's promised, but also he is the temple where God and men meet together. God chose Mount Zion. Jesus said, there's a day in which you're not going to worship God in this place, in this mountain, or in Jerusalem, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. But those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, the son of David, is a fulfillment of all the temple was intended to be. And these promises to David 
and promises of the temple find their fulfillment in him. May the Lord bless you and keep you.